I'm talking to Anya Raza and Yumna Rizvi about their film that we're going to show next week, Thursday night on, uh, oh, my computer's doing things. Um, we're going to show their film on Thursday, February 16th at Wonderland Dreams. And um, we're talking at 3 p.m. because I was messaging them at 3 a.m. last night feeling horrible. We hosted the Hannah Haha opening night and the party after and I DJ'd a little and it's just, you know, talking to people and it's so difficult. Like I'm old and I don't I don't go out the way I used to. And I guess it's just the rhythms and speaking, like just having to raise your voice at that volume and you know, Anya, as you were saying, like repeating yourself over and over again all night, man it takes a lot out of you. It's just, so I was like, we were supposed to do this at 10 AM and I was just, I knew that at 10 AM I was going to be like drinking tea and nursing myself. And like, I didn't even drink alcohol last night. Like I had zero drinks and I don't know. I just felt myself feeling so terrible. It was such a successful night. You were saying like, you know, the motivating factor of it, like it was a major success. Like so happy we did this, you know, for, um, for the movie, but it just takes a lot of energy out of me. I want to find ways to do that with like, without, without that. Yeah, it's very public facing as well, right? So you're in the middle of like promoting something or talking about people, creating new content, whatever it is you're doing. And that just takes a lot out of you because you're also busy making this stuff. Yeah. And um, in our case, it's also like, we're making this stuff and then we have to talk about it and we have to talk about making it. and Sometimes when the topics are a little heavier, it becomes a little difficult. And then you have to be in these spaces where people are partying or drinking or like, I mean, we enjoy art, we enjoy culture, but then there's also like a deeper kind of, I guess, like professional side to it where it's like, I'm having a good time, but I also in the back of my mind, I'm constantly thinking about projects and work. And talk to me about Guantanamo at a club. Yeah. <laughs> let me, let me talk to you about Guantanamo at a club. Yeah, we uh, so the movie last night, you're like Hannah Haha. It's not a party movie. It's about like disenfranchisement and you know American ennui, like uh, and and listlessness. Um, and you know the actors are there and they're not that far off from their real experience and stuff. And you know it's a weird thing that like yeah, let's DJ, let's like play music with you know like techno, whatever. It's weird. And and I was thinking about your film too, where we've been thinking about like, like I was gonna put it in another program uh, originally, you know, Anya, we talked about it. And then like, I, I ran that by the other, like another filmmaker and she was like nervous about like, you know, the energy about like this heavy, heavy topic. So I, I think that this is actually cool that we're doing this literally like this recording right now, because I think no matter what, so I put it in a program that it it will definitely carry. I think I'll like play it in the middle, like smack in the middle of the night so that it's like, you know, we sort of like build up to it and then the audience has like a come down also. But it's good that we're doing this because I want to like talk about it at the cadence. I think that it deserves and needs rather than like, yeah, people are going to be loose and like wanting to have fun and not necessarily focus on Guantanamo, but maybe like from zero, tell me about the film and like where you guys came together on it and what made you want to turn this, something I'm really interested in, like what came first, the film or the, the activism? That's funny. Um... I, I'll give a short intro, like Yumna and I are already friends. We were friends uh, like from Pakistan and um, the film didn't start as a film. I think like for me at least, it's like I've always tried to come with to my work with like a sense of social purpose. Um, and I was already in DC and Yumna and I met at a party and I guess we did talk about Guantanamo, so that's funny, but that's how it started. <laughs> Yeah, Young, do you remember? Yeah, I mean, for me, like, this is like, I've been in this area of work, of activism, and working for human rights organizations for the past 10 years or so now, <clears throat> like, from an intern starting out to now being a policy analyst 
and I've worked in Pakistan as well, which is where I met Anya. Even there, I was working on very dark subjects of death row prisoners and police torture. And when I came back to DC to work on Guantanamo, I was sort of tasked with how do we make this issue, you know, how do we get younger people to care about it? Because it's the war on terror has been around for 20 years. Most young folks weren't even alive when 9-11 happened. So they don't know, you know, and <clears throat> as someone who is also Muslim and an, an activist, I have family members who didn't know that Guantanamo was still open. So how do you make it relevant again? Um, and so we thought of this idea of wanting to do something because CVT, Center for Victims of Torture, where I work, is a provides rehabilitation to survivors of torture globally. Um, and most, if you know, of the detainees at Guantanamo have been tortured in horrific ways. And so our expertise sort of lies in the healing. And I said to Anya, how do we showcase what that looks like? You know, we talk about the bad stuff. We talk about <clears throat> what was done to whom and how, but we don't talk about them, you know, rebuilding after that or what that process to put someone back together may look like. Um, and I think that, you know, because of Anya's creative vision and like the way her mind just works, I was like, I have to do something with this one. And I remember at that party, we talked about, you know, at the UN and all these people talk about these things, but they don't have the heart and, you know, art has heart. And so how do we, make it emotive? How do we get people to connect to it in a way that they haven't been by, you know, talking heads or reading papers or reports? You mean it'll be like a lot of data, but not like human connection? Right. Yeah. And the fact is, is that around torture, there's very little data because naturally survivors don't really want to talk about their experiences. And it's kind of ironic that the world is obsessed with all of this like dark topics, but we don't really think about like what happens to the people after that happens to them, you know? And even, I mean, specifically in entertainment, we're constantly interested in the darker side of life. And yet, you know, there are real people behind this and what goes, what, what happens to them is not the only thing that's important and part of the conversation. And so I think when we were talking about this, we just wanted to expand the narrative a little bit beyond an interview beyond a documentary behind beyond like what what I guess like what we already know and really go into the heart and the humanity of the matter it's like a person and what their individual experience was like and how they're how they're pulling themselves out of it I think that I, I kind of I I often get people sort of like shuddering when I talk like this but I think that there's sort of a hierarchy of like causes and people don't like to talk about it that way because it, it, it risks, you know, it's, it's controversial. It's, I don't know, it's creates friction. It's easier to just be like, say the party lines, you know, say the safe stuff. But I think that, you know, what you're talking about, I'm, I'm thinking about the wire right now, like the TV show and how that did really beautifully for like now, finally, like they're literally giving like weed dealers licenses to open shops in New York City. They're prioritizing those people who went to jail for it in the past, but have like rehabilitated, even though what they did before was like, shouldn't have really been punished that way. But they are like, so black America is being prioritized as the, in this rehabilitated sense, saying prison reform is bad. You know, the way that like we put literally like weed dealers in jail for 20 years to do something that is like, you know, really harmless almost actually helpful now we're, we're considering it but it's as if like the muslim cause is lower in the hierarchy and i, I guess like i'm i'm jewish and anti-semitism is lower in the hierarchy because they're like no you're good you guys are fine you don't need the help and the muslim cause is lower in the hierarchy because it's like well they've not behaved well you know like right. the muslims have done bad things and we don't need to pick them up yet because, you know, and it, it's this weird thing where like, so you're, what you're talking about, just supplant that, just displace that and call it prison reform. And it is like an unimpeachable 
cause in the United States, but your Guantanamo cause is super controversial. And it's why, like, I, I think it has a lot to do with racism and Islamophobia and stuff like that. Absolutely. But it also has to, oh, sorry. Um, no, go ahead, go ahead. I just, I think like, just coming back to what you're saying about the hierarchy of causes, mm -hmm. it's also about who's determining that hierarchy. Yeah, totally. Where, where the media stems from, who's talking about it, who has the money to finance these stories, um, where do these outlets come from? So it's often Western, and of course they have their own perspective and their own agenda. And so it's actually sad because we as Muslims would not put ourselves like lower in the hierarchy. We would actually like like to have ourselves, you know, on equal footing. And that's the sad thing that like people can become, of course it's overwhelming. I mean, there are naturally so many causes um, that, that we try to speak up about, but it is, um, it, it's still something that requires like we need to be really nuanced about we're understanding who's actually talking about these things yeah and whose whose voice is coming out and and how can they justify certain things right so this is us attempting as two muslim women going hey by the way we grew up in a post 9 11 world and yeah. torture was something that was uh that's how we learned about it that our muslim brothers were being picked up some without cause, some were never even convicted, and they ended up in this incredible uh, no man's land where no international law applied and they just sat there and nobody could do anything. And it's been 21 years. And at a cost of $500 million a year, we're still not able to push back on it. So this is, yeah, this is our attempt. Yeah, definitely. Uh, as you're speaking, I'm like, I want to make sure I clarify that when I speak of a hierarchy of causes, that's not a righteous hierarchy. That's an absurdity, you know. So I didn't even think to context to to qualify it as no. That's a negative. That's a stupid thing that there would be a hierarchy of causes. And of course, anyone determining that is doing it not righteously. You know, doing it with motivations, you know, behind it. Um, yeah, I think it's horrific. And what I was gonna say earlier was that how blatant the Islamophobia around the war on terror was, right? That Guantanamo <clears throat> is just Muslim men. There's no other religion right. in there or has been in there besides men who are Muslim. There was one Australian, like David Hicks, who also like was a convert though. And besides that, it has been Arab and like South Asian, you know, brown and black Muslim men. Yeah, and there were about like 800 of them. 830, how much is the exact number? 779. Oh, seven. <clears throat> there you go. 779, you said? 779 with 34 still left, 20 cleared for release. Three of those who have been cleared Wait, for release. 779 with 34 still left. You meant 779 ever having, having yeah, been ever, there? Yeah, ever being there, yeah. And so 34 total, currently. 34 currently. 20 of those 34 have been cleared for release. Three of those 20 have been cleared for over 10 years now. Still there. There's another three out of the 20 who have not been charged. Like, none of them have been charged or you know convicted as of yet there's been like two plea deals but that's it you know and you have 20 you have 20 people who have been cleared for release who are still held in indefinite detention they don't know where yeah, they're going. That going so what the government says <clears throat> is that it is difficult to find you know places to resettle them there's there's different problems that there's laws around where they can go so congress has legislated like five four or five countries where they cannot go that's libya somalia yemen and recently they added afghanistan last year so they can't go there then you have to find other places to take them if they can't be repatriated to their home countries and then in our call convincing some other country to take them yeah, so you would have to find some other country to take them. And that then it requires security assurances, that requires humanitarian assurances, how are they going to be treated, and a whole... Has to pay for their quality of life, basically. Right. It's a whole lot of processes that have to go through. But the fact that, you know, we're 21 years and it's still... You've had people there for cleared for 10 years, that I don't have an answer for that as to, like, why those people are still there. Would that not be what gets, you know, like I, I 
a fundraising campaign or whatever, like can whatever you're raising money for, like as an organization, is there not some, I'm, I'm speaking ignorantly, like I don't, I don't have any experience here. So I'm, I'm probably asking a very obvious question that has an ob obvious answer of why this doesn't happen. But there are people who agree with your cause that have resources. Can, can you, they, we not raise, you know, $300,000 to go toward the repatriatization of like subsidizing that to Luxembourg, let's say like they're going to, Luxembourg's going to take five of these people and we're going to put in $300,000 each for them to like, so that Luxembourg can take them on, but not pay for it and make it a more seamless transition. Is that not something that can happen? It can't because the negotiations are more than just monetary. And it's not even that those countries take on that economic you know, responsibility or financial responsibility. The US does, or lawyers now are trying to negotiate the US gives funds for resettlement purposes. But it's also like those countries will say, well, we have to look out for our citizens. We have to answer to them too. You know, what are we getting out of it politically? You know, now we're in a post-Trump era where most countries don't necessarily want to negotiate with the U.S. You also have multiple refugee crises, and the U.S. is also asking those countries to absorb some of the refugees who are coming here. So how do you pick and choose, you know, who is more important in the situation? Yeah. And even now, so that's one part. The other part is that at some point, which is ridiculous, that the government will still argue in court that folks who have been cleared still pose a threat, right? And being cleared is an administrative, like you go through an administrative review process called the Periodic Review Board. It's an interagency process with all the heads of DOD, DOJ, like CIA, like, and it, like ODNI, like all those heads get together and it's consensus based. So if you're saying someone's cleared, but now you're saying in court that that person still pre presents a threat, how does that make any sense? Or give that person any hope for the future. Right, so that's, you know, but I'm glad you brought up, you know, what folks can do. So one thing um, some people have organized is a Guantanamo Survivors Fund. Um, that is for like former detainees who have, you know, already been transferred out. Um, like to support them. So if folks are like would like to donate to that, I think that would be really helpful. You know exactly who it's going to, where it's going, and it's so going that's to exactly what I was saying, like yeah. just in practice that but you're saying that there's a huge amount of hurdles to pass before you can even get there. But there right. are some people who have gotten there. So that's great to know. Yeah. Cool. Is that Anya, as you see, is that like a, a focus for the awareness around the film? Or, you know, what, what do you see as the thesis behind? I think like what um, when we made the film, we wanted to create like an emotional experience for someone going through trauma and towards healing. And when we're watching this film, um, we're thinking of anybody who's uh, undergone torture. So it's not just people um, from Guantanamo, it's someone from Syria. It's someone who's endured police brutality here in the US. It's uh, someone from uh, Sudan. It's really, there's unfortunately reported cases of torture in, from, by amnesty but in over 141 countries. So there's some, there, people, all over the world are surviving something and are so quiet about it. And there's very little knowledge about what their experiences and what they need to recover and get back into society. And so I guess my thesis of the film, I mean, when we're talking about something as simple as this is really just to kind of like connect to the person behind the experience and see what they need. And so rather than focus on the torture itself, which is so gruesome and horrific, I'd like to think about like, let's focus on the healing. And that's why the work of um, the Center for Victims of Torture is so important because they really put healing as a center of their work, healing through therapy, healing through um, advocacy, healing through talking about it. And so anybody who has an opportunity to see this film is actually can think about, hey, what can I do to contribute towards the healing of someone who's undergone something so horrific? And so we don't only need to think about the survivors in, term, in, in terms of, oh, that's so sad, you know, and, and kind of like, because it's so horrific, we can kind of, we have to kind of turn 
our heads away because it's too heavy a topic. Um, there are ways to look beyond that experience. And I think that that's, that's why it was so interesting working on this project because um, one of their, one of CBT's methods of therapy is um, called the river of life. And the river of life was a big inspiration for this film because it's a form of therapy where um, you draw your life as a river and you have particular points marked on it, which are both, which are important events, traumatic events, but also other important life events. And so you kind of get a sense of, hey, my life is more than just that experience that happened to me, however horrific and however heavy, I'm more than that. And um, I'd like to think of, of this film as that as well, as like you are more than just this particular thing that happened to you. You're not defined by this singular experience. And we can help people get through that and get past that, and get their life back together. Well, to go back to just from the sort of movie side of things, like stepping outside of the, you know, cause aspects where, you know, how does the movie come together? Where, where did that process take you? um so the movie was it was so this was october 2021 that we started talking about it and we were talking about it and talking about it and then eventually i spoke with the rest of the organization and we were like all right let's do something we want to do something we don't know what and we probably had about 20 different pitches and proposals figuring out what the story was and how we were going to tell it because it had to be nuanced and it couldn't be something that had already been done before and in the meantime i researched and researched and researched because that's my approach that's my process i need to know and absorb as much as i can and part of that research um beyond just policy was really just kind of getting into the survivor stories um, of people from anywhere around the world um, that cbt works with um survivor stories um that cbd of, of people that cbd doesn't even work with um and really getting a sense of wow there there are over a million people in the world that are just kind of quiet about their experience and going through this by themselves. And so slowly I started to form this idea of the singular person and how he would be feeling just in the middle, caught right in the middle of going through that cathartic healing process, what that would feel like. And so after studying these case studies, I started honestly just writing as if I was this person and I was writing and writing and writing. It turned out I was writing poetry and I wrote the first and second and third and 20th poem. And it was just like flooding out of me, this feeling of like, what was it that brought me here and how am I going through it? And something that just kept coming back to me from all of these survivor stories was this, 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 this journey, this crossing, this having to get from A to B or being forced to come from A to B. And water was often a source that kept coming back, a symbol that kept coming back. And, and water is, you know, an emotional abyss and 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 in so many ways symbolic of like our own deeper darker feelings that we're not able to explore and so i thought of waterboarding as a, as an example of torture um that you know guantanamo is most famous for and um kind of subliminally started thinking of what if we were actually in the water with our survivor and seeing them exit exit that water and that's headspace that the water is associated with and that's how we got to the film so i ended up writing a script based on all of those um those poems and that's how we got to yeah i, I eventually share that and that's how we got to refining it and and you know the the script that we have today that we used with for the film and it was always you know brainstormed together as part of cbt right yeah, I think that that's the thing that was most important to me. I am not an expert, right? I'm a humanitarian. I've worked in the humanitarian space. I'm um, an activist in many ways. Uh, I'm an economist, but I am not in any way a specialist on torture. And I don't want to come across as that. That's why it was really important that Yumna was with me along this, because there's only so far I can take it from, from the perspective of someone who is an ally. And so I kept going back to CBT and saying, am I on the right path? Is this the right direction? How can we be inclusive? Are we being pedantic? Are we being, are there things here that we need to be adding? And so there was a lot of actually really interesting um, moments where I was even learning from, from that, you know, initially we'd called the film Still Drowning, for instance, because it was this feeling of like being overwhelmed. 
And in many ways, I was still drowning because I was in the middle of that experience writing as the survivor. And then um, towards the end of it, we're like, wait, we're not still drowning. We're, we're, we're no longer drowning. We're out of that and we're still here. And so the, the name of the film became Still Here. And it, it's simple, but it kind of kind of like it's a snapshot of what the journey is like, is that it's, it's, it's constantly evolving. I found Talk out later you. that Still Here is also the name of an exhibition by the Chicago Torture uh, Justice Project, <laughs> which I think like speaks volumes to this whole thing, right? Like Still Here, like the whole point of torture is dehumanizing, breaking someone's spirit physically, emotionally, like in every way possible. And the resilience on the other side is that you are still here. Like you are still, there's worth there. You're still a person. There's humanity there, there's dignity there. The whole work that we do is to bring hope and healing to people that you are so much more outside of what's happened to you. You won't break my soul. <laughs> that should be the soundtrack to this movie. No, no, no more Beyonce placements. We got enough Beyonce placements. <clears throat> but it's placements. like that though, it is that. It is that, that's the feeling, right? Of like, that's not, this is not all that's, that I am. I'm more than just this experience. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, I agree with that part. I just mean, I can't hear about Beyonce anymore in, in life in general. I just, <laughs> it's, it's obnoxious. <laughs> like that people are giving her dance music awards that like are made to go to like actual, you know, DJ, like the dance music community. And she gets to take that and then complain about not getting also, you know, she gets to take people's awards and then complain that, but she didn't take everyone's awards. Like, and that somehow the narrative is in her favor. Like people are mad at Harry Styles for winning an award. It's just, anyway, whatever. We like, got a member of the beehive, the baby. Yeah, we're, we're like long past logic here. This is like, this is the same. These are akin to, you talk about, hierarchy of causes you know it's the same this is the same thing like we're mad that harry styles won the award that a bunch of people wanted beyonce to win even though it's a vote but we're not mad that she paid herself into a category that is traditionally for you know in, in, in effect marginalized communities like dance music is 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 you know it's it's a gay black man's award and that's where they you know that's where they get their flowers and that she got to do that that she took that but we're not talking about it but we're very mad that harry styles won an award that she that people wanted her to win anyway that's how we get the same thing of you know hierarchy of causes um but i did not mean to cause that <laughs> no i know i know i'm just saying like that's how you really feel you have to <laughs> Yeah. Like bravo to her, good. Yeah. Exert your force, you know. But like having "You Won't Break My Soul" be an anthem doesn't feel right. Like because she she used you know dance music. Like even like Diplo got in trouble because he was on the camera, I guess, at, when she won, and she, and he mouthed the words. She bought that. Diplo is a lifer in dance music. Like call him right. whatever you want. Like. You know, I don't think he's like the best guy, whatever, like lots of issues with Diplo. But like, I mean, I personally, I've, I've known him, I'm not, not like tight. I just mean, he's like been nothing but pro and lovely in every interaction I've ever had with him. And I've never directly heard any of the, you know, I'm sure he's done a bunch of not nice things to women as he's been rumored to. I just mean like, um, separate from that he's a dance music lifer and like he has scaled it to the highest um he has taken djing the furthest further than anyone and when he calls out the award as going to he's an authority there he's a lifer and he gets to say that he gets to call that an injustice and then he got attacked and has to apologize for just saying what was real. She bought it, she did. She paid people to, <laughs> to gain entry into that category. And 
you know. I'm gonna say our. I'm just happy that I think this podcast is gonna get viral because of that, and like, <laughs> we'll know even more about the film now. But I have two questions related to what you were asking, and then we'll go back to the film. And yeah, yeah. I have two burning questions now. One, when you talk about Diplo, like taking DJing to the highest level, how do you compare that with what David Guetta did initially, bringing that type of music into the mainstream, like audience and radio? And then two, when it comes to the Grammys, I. I, like this is the first time I fully watched the show after years, and it just seemed like I didn't watch. <laughs> were you boycotting? No, I just do. Uh, I just don't care. Last time I went to the Grammys, I fell asleep, and I oh like, well, yeah. not all of us have that luxury. Um, but yeah, it's boring. It's stupid. It's like but it's it seemed like it was all very based on like what is commercially successful, right? It's not yeah, yeah. what is actually what the industry might consider good, but it's just about commercial success. Well, it's not supposed to be, is the idea. Right. It's it's not the AMAs, which are that. Like the American Music Awards, I think right, is right. what they are. That is a pop culture thing. That is a that is just a it's a it's a TV show basically where they want to get famous people on and they use awards as the entry point for that. That's not what the Grammys are. The Grammys are supposed to, it's like the Oscars are not supposed, the Grammys and the Oscars are, you know, supposed to be, it's like, yes, this is Hollywood's biggest night, but it's supposed to also be the biggest achievement of, you know, cinema, right. not Avatar. Mm. Like it's not, you know, Avatar is the biggest movie, but that's not necessarily the best picture. Um, same with the Grammys. It's not who sold the most records, so there is some balance of respect the way the public responds to something. That's like I say, I fully bow down to Beyonce's, you know, uh, ability to touch people on a mass scale. And that without any cynicism whatsoever, that's a beautiful thing that she has scaled. But what I mean is, you know, the dance, the, the best dance recording award is not for Beyonce. Right. It's not for who had the most popular, you know, thing that could be qualified and sort of bend and twist to call it dance music, you know, like it's not who sold the most records that could technically have a four to the floor beat associated with it. No, it's it's best dance recording. It's supposed to honor the reason why there's categories is because it's supposed to segment it. It's supposed to say the people like there's a blue, you know, Edgar Winter won an award for a blues recording, first time in 50 years he won one. Like, it's not let's award the 20 most popular people. Right, it is, that could be. It's about diversity, it's about giving, you know, because that's diversity brings, um, creativity emerges from diversity. So if we just award Beyonce, Harry Styles, Taylor Swift, you know, the, the popular people, we just get a homogenous response. But Edgar Winter being on, the Grammys, the same day that Taylor Swift is on there is gonna create, it's gonna catalyze thought in people. So best dance recording going to Beyonce prevents that, that, that alchemy. And that I don't like. I want that to go to like, I don't know, like Madonna knows what she's fucking doing. Madonna did her like viral post and um, she put baddest of them all in the Instagram post, which is like an underground hit in dance music that blew up this year. It's not performing on the Grammys. You know, Beyonce doesn't do that. Beyonce says, oh, baddest of them all is cool. I want that. I wanna buy that and get that to be the Beyonce song. Madonna coming from the eighties, you know, who had Jellybean Benitez, a DJ, a, a, a resident DJ, as like her first producer guy. And, you know, she was like the first one to really say like, oh, these gays are really cool. They got some ideas. I want to work with that. I, and she brought them all up with her and she's continuing to do that. And I love her for that. And her putting baddest of them all on Grammy night on her most viral, like fucking Instagram post. That's exactly what's like, that is lifting the culture. That is, is, is saying I, Put my homework in because Madonna. I don't know if she knew the song beforehand, but she asked someone, "What is the song that epitomizes this?" No, she right cares. Mm -hmm. And she she either knew already or she asked someone and she got the right answer. 
she asked like Venus X or someone, you know, she asked, she asked Honey Dijon probably, literally who's in the post. She put Honey Dijon in the post and trans performer, trans DJ. And Honey Dijon probably said, you know, what's the song of the moment? Baddest of them all. And she knew it. And like, great. Beyonce doesn't do that. Beyonce says, I, I mean, I literally know this personally. Like I was one of those people asked, what are the cool things? We're back in when Beyonce was reinventing herself. This is what she's done for the last 15 years. She calls people who are like cool people. And at, at for there was a moment in like 2012 when I was cool. And I got that call from Beyonce's A&R and said, hey, you know, we'd love to talk to you about like who the cool people are because we want to get them to work with Beyonce. And I was like, this is weird. Like, why? Why would Beyonce want to work with them? And why would I didn't understand? Now I understand, of course. So I kind of like blew it off. But Madonna lifts them up. Beyonce gets them paid and makes it a Beyonce thing. And she's amazing. It's just it's call it what it is. You know, that's why Diplo Diplo, who has been paid a lot of money by Beyonce and also paid a lot of money by Madonna. He's worked with both of them. Look how Diplo is responding, you know, like he's in the he's also in the Madonna post. So he's like promoting her tour and he's getting seen on the Grammys as talking shit about Beyonce. That's the response of how these superstars deal with dance music. This specific instance, they deal with it very differently. And I think Diplo, for whatever criticism you want to give him, he is an absolute respected authority on that on how a superstar pop star comes into the community and gives versus takes. So that's what, when I hear break my soul, I hear, oh, that's not real. That's, that's, that someone else had that feeling and that idea and that got repackaged and promoted bigger. Look and at what you started, Tanya. I know, man. Right? Look at what you started. I'm listening. <laughs> I guess, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's just, yeah, it's uh, sometimes you need some light dance music. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> to, to kind we were on Burna Boy when we were shooting our, like this film. Yeah. You played Burna Boy, you said? Mostly. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I love dance music. I, I mean it just in like, it's been a perpetually, you know, since its beginning, it's been for um marginalized communities by marginalized communities and then usually white people come in and like turn it into their own thing and make it bottle service and stuff and they price people out and that sucks but dude this is something that like is just sparking a thought in me which is the fact that like we're not the right people aren't talking about the right stories and money isn't going to the right stories and promoting totally. say cre creativity and a diversity of stories and experiences money is just going to the safe bet where the large audiences already exist and yeah. so i mean like kind of like bringing it back to the film but there is a bit of that with this film as well of like this is i mean it's a two minute film it's short we want everybody to see it we want people to talk about it we want people to feel it but this isn't something that's like sexy right this isn't something that's going to be like oh everybody's going to want to watch this because it's like you know it's got the hottest biggest something or the other in there it's like it's made by us but with blood blood sweat and tears and it's a small budget film, but we still have a lot of heart and we have a lot of, I, I'd like to say like, we're coming from the people who, who've who had these experiences. So we're actually like trying to support and really like nourish the other side of the torture conversation and the other side of the, the conversation of, of uh, oh, they've the victims, what's happened to them, poor them. No, there's another side. So I think like, it, it, you know, you can have big money go to these like big safe, safe topics or even like make something more trendy on their own. But it it speaks volumes when it comes from when it comes from the source itself. I mean, that's similar to what happened with Jihad Rehab, right? Like, I, Jihad Rehab, I literally have. Wow. OK. Yeah, I yeah. have a note. I have both of what you were just saying are like notes on my. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like it's just so easy to pick that up because that was something that just they came out around the same time that we were thinking of doing this. And I remember being in a call with the filmmakers and some other activists as part of a coalition. And, you know, they- With, with Meg Smacker? Yeah, or, and, yeah. you know, so they, you know, were really sort of given the criticism of, 
you are just reinforcing this narrative of Islamophobia that these folks, you know, were terrorists. They haven't even been charged with anything. And what that sort of created, right? Like if you're, you're, you're telling Meg that she was- I wasn't saying anything, but- or, or, or your position, group, whatever, right. was communicating to Meg that she was reinforcing Islamophobia. Yes. Got yes. it, okay. You and are critical there, of what she was doing. Yeah, and then there was like that whole letter that came out from like over a hundred, a bunch of you know Amemsa filmmakers, okay. directors, uh, you know, condemning it or criticizing it, um, and it just playing you know on on the same narratives of what we're talking about it being what's hot, what people are talking about, and feeding into that to be more commercially viable. And like, fortunately, unfortunately, I mean art is you know and whatever people's views are now it's in a place where that film i think you can't see publicly anymore but you know for us like we, we had sort of also talked about and in in our film you don't see any of that right the 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 main character could be anybody which is what we wanted because cvt you know we work with refugees asylum seekers we work globally you know we see people and you saw during the in december migrants who were crossing the southern border literally also crossing bodies of water to come to the US. So our character could be anybody. We didn't want to, you know, like, obviously, I would never want to even touch that of like reinforcing negative stereotypes. And it turned into a two minute film. And the response that we've gotten is great, where, you know, really respected journalists in the space. And Guantanamo, you know, counsel has said to us that I feel like that's my client. You know, or someone has said, like, uh, which detainee is that? Yeah. What do you, I mean, I have, like, so many things I want, because this is such a, you know, a can of worms here. Like, you know, there's Kim Yutani of Sundance, who was the one who programmed the film. And there. Was, was basically, I, don't quote me, like, like, from what I understand, didn't want to pull it. But had to because everyone else disagreed with her basically and she just had to like make the you know the call for the team kind of thing um but like you know have you how much awareness do you have of what went down with sundance and and you know what is your feeling no okay no yeah no from the film side like from the we program art and get art out there and this thing happened so like not you know removing it from the like whether or not this is Islamophobia narrative, but like now just thinking of it from the like art promotion and programming angle, like these people were in a really tough spot. I, yeah, I get that. And I, I just think that because this is such a controversial topic specifically when it comes to Guantanamo, because now you're, <clears throat> you have to be very careful with language, right? Like we don't call like for an example we don't call it a prison you know we call it a detention facility because a prison okay. by definition is different there's a difference between who is a detainee versus a prisoner and so there there's certain things that were said in that movie that weren't factually correct and so when you have stuff like that out there to people who are probably just watching or learning about this for the first time that is not the information that you want them to have and that just kind of speaks to what we were saying earlier about like the dangers of having a certain person represent an entire narrative or a certain group of people, right? Um, if you're having these stories that need to be contextualized, that are so nuanced, that have so much history around mm -hmm. wars have been fought, hundreds of thousands of people have died around this. Let's not joke about it. So we need to be really careful about this. And it requires, and that's why if you're having um, something that's so new being introduced and people who are programming not informed, unaware, and the information is incomplete and we're not actually verifying some of this, that's dangerous. As Yumna is saying, if this is like someone's first foray into, okay, what is like, even just jihad, the rehab, like the word jihad is, is it means so much more than what like is simplified by somebody, you know, it's it means something completely different to us. So it's just... It's dirty because it's trendy and it's convenient, and you just play into play to your audience that We're way. We're living in a post-Trump MAGA world where they're talking about 
Ilhan Omar being sent to Guantanamo, things like that, you can't have that. that it's so irresponsible to yeah. have that narrative out there saying everyone in Guantanamo was a terrorist and these guys are former terrorists or prisoners. Like you, nuances and like words here as legal and wheezy as it may sound matter here. Oh, I don't think it sounds, you don't, you need not qualify that <laughs> position more than the statement alone, I think. The words, of course, matter. But, yeah. Yeah, especially people, again, you know, who, it, this is the first intro, it's, you know, very irresponsible. Yeah. So, if I, if I'm reading correctly, the position of the Sundance programmers kind of saying art first and, you know, freedom of speech kind of thing and putting it out there and giving it the Sundance seal of approval platform, programming it effectively is an irresponsible act if it is not vetted, if the information that they have in it is not vetted. Is that You I don't would need say to, case, I'm yeah. saying more as, a, as an abstract, you know? Yeah, like, I think in this case, yes, because there's, it could actually lead to, like, it could have consequences. And you have to be really careful about that. Like, it I could have consequences. Like, you're talking about, like, people are threatening a legislator to go to Guantanamo, calling her a terrorist. Now you're saying all of these people, like, you have to have some sort of vetting process to see or like at least think about what the potential outcome could be. And I guess what Anya was saying earlier, like talk to people who are in that space, talk to people who are like working on this. Is this correct? Is this incorrect? Like again, and Guantanamo is something that is so, you know, weedsy and legally confusing and gray that, you know, things, things matter. Words really do matter. And when we say pass the mic, you don't, you know that's the 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 you know the easy thing so you pass the mic oh people were speaking for themselves but we as filmmakers we edit and we create we create stories and we shape the narrative and if we ourselves are kind of shaping a very certain narrative it's important that the people around us check our biases i mean it's not necessarily coming from like a malicious space but it is coming from a negligent space you know and so that's that's kind of like the way i i look at it really or i think like if the point is like I am on the right, right? Like I am that person like who wants people like Ilhan to go to Guantanamo and I don't care. So I will put out that narrative and like feed that. Are you coming from that perspective? Or are you coming from like another perspective of like, you actually want to talk about this, you know, make a space for yourself in this and like be part of the advocacy that's happening. And like, you know what I mean? Like, and I think that for Sundance, I really wish that they did some more vetting. It's not, you know, like having that stamp is a big deal. Yeah, I think a lot of people will read that as, I mean, me personally, I will read that as Sundance must co-sign this. If it's, if it's programmed, it, it must be co-signed. It's, it's, it's a pseudo, you know, a, a presumptuous take, but I think it's, it's like, yeah, if it's in the program, they basically politically, you know, informationally co-sign it. Yeah, you. I think you, if you I program just... something most of the time. People assume that I that I like it. You know, I program every day. I program all the time, and a lot of the time, people will. I have these conversations all the time, and you know, people effectively think of it. It's like DJing. It's like speaking. You know, if I'm going to play the song at the club, um. It's me saying, I think this is a song that is for you and you will benefit from it and it is good. And you know, if I'm playing a movie in my showcase, it says that this is what I think movies should be. And it's not, in, I guess it's a slippery slope because I could speak personally, it's not entirely accurate. I, I play things for a lot of different reasons. I play things because of the community it speaks to. I play things because of sometimes just getting a diversity of form, technical, you know, technical, like there, there might be a kind of movie that I don't, it's not my vibe, but I think spreading out, you know, having different things that even sometimes like I play things by really young people, 
because I want to represent that and I want to open up those pathways of thinking. And it might not be my favorite, but someone hit me up about putting these like 13 year olds movie. And, you know, I honestly kind of don't want to do it because it's like just rich parents and the kids are crowdfunding. And I'm like, not so into that. But like the, the, the work definitely isn't like what I love, but the fact that there are these like 13 year old boys, like, and trying to do it, it's cool. But then I realized, oh, it's just rich parents. And then they're asking for people to pay for it anyway. And it's like an art project, but they want other people to pay for it. So I don't like that. So that's why so I was like, not, I was going to co-sign it when it was a bunch of young kids doing stuff that I don't necessarily like the results, but it's cool to promote the young kids. But then when I realized, it's like, oh, I'm going to promote these rich parents not paying for their kids art project when like they want other people to. Um, I think that's dumb. But so I did, I, I said, I don't want to platform that for that reason. Um, but I do think it's, I do, I do know from personal experience that when you platform these things, people do take it as speech, as, as statement of, of intention. And I guess the question here is, is like, okay, so what you make a film and what's your goal with the film? What does a film do? Like what Definitely. is a film? And I guess everybody has different reasons for making films and for watching them and what they do when they watch them and what they take away. I mean, everybody has their own experience, but we, um, I think that there is like a sense of responsibility of like, hey, you are, you know, someone is giving you that attention for two minutes or two hours. And um, there is some responsibility in that. And I guess in our case, we want people to walk away with not a sense of dread or or even a sense of, of just sadness. It's a sense of hope we want people to walk away with. You know, we want to give people the sense of, hey, people are these beautiful survivors who have who are so strong and are able to endure so much are now, you know, putting their life back together. And we want to represent that hope, that healing. We don't want to represent them as like, I don't know second-class citizens, you know, as people who are just victims. I think that's really like a limited way of looking at people. And um, I think that there's there's more to providing people that humanity of even just being able to speak for themselves. I wanted, Anya, before we got onto Jihad Rehab, you talked sort of about, you know, the money aspects and something that I'm really interested in and interested in getting more understanding out there about is sort of the way, the pathways for filmmakers to make things and finance things. So this is like partnership with an organization. There are also, you know, government subsidies and then there's private funding. You've kind of been involved in, I guess, mostly the former, but like, where do you see, you know, you as a, like you care about the causes, but you also care about like your filmmaking career. And you definitely had involvement in the private stuff and the in the for-profit kind of art making. So wh where do you see sort of the the difference in the pathways between, and, and it, it also gets into the westernization of things. Like in United States of America, it's, it's, nine, it's almost all private. In Europe, it's almost all government. And then there's some mixture of, you know, getting organizations involved, cause-related. So, where, where do you see that landscape for you as both a filmmaker and a, you know, activist, I guess? Um, it is really challenging because um, it also forces you to kind of slow down your processes because you have to go through these applications and you have to go and really pitch yourself in it. And so before you're ev even able to get started on your work, you have to kind of wait for funding. So there's a there's a big lag there. And I think for artists, momentum is everything. So that can be quite like frustrating if you kind of want to get things moving. Um, I also think that it's like it's skewed because um, as you say, like, yeah, it's private in the US, it's public in in, um, in Europe, and all of them require like rigorous processes. But to even get to those processes, there's certain ways of speaking, there's certain ways of pitching materials you have to create. So that limits like creativity. Um, it, I think working with organizations like, yeah, you have to align yourself with the cause and I see that, but organizations like CVT or other nonprofits who are really like speaking up for important causes don't have that much money. So it's confusing in that way because then you can have like a really important, powerful topic, but then you're not able to spend the actual amount of money that could kind of bring it and get that attention. We're talking about huge, huge films um, that need 
hundreds of thousands of dollars of marketing just to be able to get people to go to the theater. And it's not, you know, these films aren't necessarily good, but so you need these huge budgets to get people to actually be interested because the market is so saturated with content. So it's so hard because when you start thinking about money and you start thinking of art, it's like you have to start making like these decisions of like, who is the audience? Who is it going for? What are What is our goal with the film? Are we trying to make money with the film? Are we trying to just get people to see it? And in the meantime, how are the people who are making the films, how are they getting paid? And why should they have to only live off like a barter favor system and hoping that like somebody will throw them a bone once in a while? It's a very confusing space. And I think especially if you're like an emerging filmmaker and you're not from the US or from Europe, it's even more challenging because um, the funds don't exist the same way. So in Asia, um, you certainly have pockets of funds all over, of course, um, in, in South Korea or in India or um, in Indonesia. There are definitely places that are there, but it's it's there's the, the sort of larger market and that Asian space doesn't exist the same way you have like the North American space. And that's still something that's developing. Another thing is, is really like the um, freedom of speech aspect of it, you know, in some some places when you have money that you're getting from a government, you might have some other like strings attached. Um, and so these strings are also something that are dangerous because they prevent you as a filmmaker to really speak the truth and with the independence that you need to. And um, that kind of like, I don't know, I think it, it really kind of um, dissolves some of the authenticity of the content when you're also kind of having financiers um guiding that so it's 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 a murky space and um i'm still navigating i'm still very much figuring it out because i um i, I don't want to have to compromise too much on a vision in order to get my work out there um but on the other hand i'm finding that that there's no real straight path to um getting your film made and so it's really just about finding people who you trust and who you can be in spaces with and for that where do you find those spaces it's not it's none of it's really straightforward and because it's so western centric and so north america heavy for the entertainment industry it becomes it becomes challenging unless you're in those spaces physically is there with your knowledge of you know we've talked about you resemble me and dina's film and i know that you know dina and some of the people involved where do you see i don't know this might just be nothing but like is like we experienced an arc of islamophobia with that film and its making and distribution do you see that is it that is a for-profit you know that is a privately funded for-profit commercial movie you know even though it has causes involved do you see any difference in when that is you know that's just an example like a counter example of like your film is is effectively not for profit and organizational you know backed and then this is one that is you know, it's supposed to make its money back. It's 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 some people are funding it because they care. Some people are funding it because they want their investment, their return on investment. Have you seen anything in terms of like the beginning of this conversation where we talk about like you know hierarchy of causes and stuff like that? Does that have an impact when you're doing something that's for profit versus when you're doing something that's not for profit, running into the same kinds of problems? Um, I think that the first problem is that people can't shake the, the Muslim cause. They can't shake their perspective of it uh, because we've just been force fed 20 years of like this, this, this like war on terror has just been like pushed down our throats and it's made us look at the world in a certain way. So when we have a story of this, this, a Muslim woman in France and what her journey was, the empathy is missing because we're coming with this bias of, but, you know, she ended up in this horrible space. And so there's these biases that you have in other communities, of course, as well, of like, oh, but, you know, we create excuses that take away our humanity from those people. And I think that, you know, more films, more conversations, bringing in the humanity of the experiences of people and and saying that there are just as equal as your North American experiences. They're just as equal as, as you know, we all are humans and there's no difference between you and me. And so the, the, the nonprofit space has um, different dangers. The for-profit space has different dangers and different challenges. But the biggest thing, I think the biggest hurdle is really just going, hey, we're not so different. And so your story is just as interesting as mine. And I'm just as curious about you as I am about the next person. And um, 
until we can have that kind of like clear, I mean, this is very utopic, but until we can have that kind of way of looking at people, our stories won't, our stories just won't resonate the same way unless you have like a massive marketing budget. And um, that just, that that's kind of like part of it, you know, at least that's the way I see it. Because even something like this, people are like, oh my God, it's tough. It's a tough pill to swallow. And you're like, yeah, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, we're talking, we have ridiculously horrible topics in other films as well that are tough pills to swallow but still beautiful films but they're about communities that we're just a bit more familiar with so it's easier for us to watch it and that leads to the danger of like over explaining for you know underrepresented communities because we're just like no no, no this is it and this is this and this is context this is a background this is all of it and that kind of dilutes the humanity of a story sometimes sorry that was like a lot of different things but not at all <laughs> these are my feelings yeah no my questions are are as well they're not exactly it's it's embodying a lot of different entry points i think yeah because i think about it with you know i just came off this experience last year where we definitely you know we talked about islamophobia a ton as it pertained to filmmaking not even just the the causes as exhibited and and as told in the in the movie but just what we experienced in a day to day, like getting emails, people telling us that, you know, these are controversial subjects that we're talking about. And I'm like, what do you mean by that exactly? Like, you know, these euphemisms that are like, you know, what what are you really saying that like you can't touch this because because what exactly? Like, why are you know, we're not, you know, to people saying that, well, you know, the ambiguity of this. And I'm like, wait, what what's ambiguous? Like things like that where they're saying things that underneath it really what they mean is a whole lot more and you know i have to as 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 you know dina has one way of one position in the conversation i have another position in the conversation and sometimes it's like do i pull that card right now do you know do i say hey white person talking to another white person what are we really talking about here you know like <laughs> um and that wasn't something that I was like waking up and saying, let me get involved in. It, it came through movies. You know, I, I cared about it as a movie. And then I started experiencing when I'm talking to people about it. Oh, this thing, this movie that we're talking about, there's an obstacle that these people have these biases that, oh, now I'm having to sort of train myself on how to combat them. I don't know, you know, collaborate with them. But yeah, it's weird because I just care about movies. Yeah, and I think especially like you come when we come from this certain perspective of like, oh, this is this is right and this is how it is. It's dangerous rather than saying, hey, where I stand right now, it's I might evolve. I might learn more and realize that I actually was standing in a place that like didn't wasn't very informed or could be more informed. And so I think also approaching any of these conversations with, hey, I'm operating with the you know, best of the knowledge that I have. And if you teach me and you convince me and I learn and I see that actually your position makes sense, then I'm allowed to move further into this space. And so I think like it it forces it forces underrepresented filmmakers to be a lot more patient and a lot more understanding as we're entering the space. And so that frustration is just part and parcel of like how you push forward. Um, I keep facing this with like another film that um, I'm making right now as well, which is like the story of an um, an Afghan woman, and just her experience, and it's based um, it's based on true stories. And I still have a lot of feminists saying this is not a feminist story. This is like told from a very uh, um, um, disadvantaged angle, and we're saying, well, that's from your Western feminist perspective. Yeah. Perhaps there is a different perspective that we have that we're coming in from, and maybe there's more room for growth here. Um, so there's, I think that the the quickness to judge is also dangerous um, in all of these spaces. Cool. Well, I'm really happy that uh, that we're showing the film to to a film centric audience, and I'm excited to see what what a film-centric audience responds to yeah i think that's that's going to be fun and see how people you know see if people um you know we've shown a few things that are like challenging you know weird abstract whatever this is challenging in a different way 
um, just in its like seriousness. So I'm excited to see how people respond. I'm happy you guys are, are going to present it. And I wonder if people pick up on like its subject immediately. I don't know. I mean, we chose yeah, we, some we could introduce it or not. You know, we could just put it up cold. Play it. I don't tell people what we're playing ahead of time. I think that's a good idea. So what we speak after? Yeah. I mean, we can introduce it sometimes. Like, I just mean I don't put it in the invites. Like, I don't. Um, mostly, partly because I think it's like fun, and and the point is partly because the point I want the emphasis to be on the people and like doing this thing together not on like oh do I want to watch these particular movies the point is that you're going to like immerse yourself in the you know art consumption thing so it's a social experience it's a physical experience and it's about the people being there so listing the lineup is not really it's, it's counterintuitive but it's also just sort of uh tactical because like I'm playing movies that are not licensed or movies that are premiering, you know, haven't premiered yet. And we're, we don't want to um, break their exclusivity and stuff like that. Like we're playing movies that are gonna premiere at festivals months later and we want, so we keep it low, low key. Um, mostly, usually the festivals know, but we just like, as long as we don't list it, it's fine. It's like a friends and family. You know, the filmmakers are allowed to do that, but like um, they just don't want it like broadcasted. So we do it for those reasons, but sometimes it has like different effects where it's like, you have no idea what you're about to get into. And um, no, I mean, that's honestly up to y'all. Like if you wanna, we can introduce it and tee it up or we can just play it and talk after. Um, I'm more excited by the latter, but uh, I don't know. What yeah, you're yeah. No, I think too, I think let, just let them watch it and then we'll talk after. Right, so. Yeah. I would love to like, get an honest reaction, yeah. Well, cool. Well, I'm happy we got to dive in here and, and you know, this will be a cool thing that people can listen to after watching also. Um, so, you know, we'll put this up today and, um, you know, help get the word out and tell all your friends if you're listening. But also, like, this will be a cool thing to share, you know, next Friday after the screening and Definitely. tell everyone, like, hey, if you want to learn more and, like, dive in and, you know, you're probably two drinks in, not gonna get into like a hardcore conversation about torture and stuff like that at the Thursday night, 10 o'clock screening, whatever. But you can listen to this and and hit up the people that 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 really did it. So I'm happy. Thank you guys for taking this time. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you on Thursday. Yeah, thanks so much, Sean. It's been great. No, thank you for having us. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, enjoy the rest of your weekend, and I'll see you in a few days. Yeah. Thank you.